Welcome back to another episode of All About Reality, episode four of season two. Um, I'm your co-host, Matt Goodwin. With me is, joining me is the venerable Luke Patrick O'Connell. Hello, folks. Back again. And, and we're very pleased and excited to announce a guest, uh, uh, get our first guest of the season, um, somebody I, I know fairly well from my Number Fire days and writing for them. Um, it's Brandon Gadula, senior editor over at Number Fire, also an analyst, um, talks about, you know, foot, you, now that it's not football season, football, golf, uh, DFS, basketball, just kind of a jack of all trades. And, and Brandon, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And yeah, I guess that's a uh, pretty much an accurate way uh, to describe me. I, I always tell people that I, people ask me what I do, and it's always hard to answer that question. I always say I, I sort of wear a lot of hats, and I mean, I kind of do. <laughs> it's uh, I like I like my my flat brim hats, but I mean, I really do wear a lot of hats at at Number Fire. Do a lot of different things: golf, football, uh, basketball, DFS, season long. So it's just it's kind of everything. But yeah, th- thanks for having me on. No, thanks for joining us. Also, congratulations on your FSWA award on on the golf side this year. Thank you. Uh, and then also just one more one more thing. You can check um, Brandon out um, on the DFS Heat Check podcast at Number Fire Pods. Is that right? Uh yeah. With Jim Sanis, right? Yep. Yep. All right. Football writer of the year. I yeah. Got to give it up for Jim. And and then obviously every, everybody knows um, my former editor JJ Zacharyson. I think everyone kind of <laughs> follows along with with him and and you know either throws shade or love to him depending on where he is with his takes. So mostly love from what I see because he's just one of the best at what he does. So um, Brandon, you I mean you're no rookie to reality sports online. You played in a number fire writers league with me a few years ago and and did pretty well. And and um, I, I guess first first off, just can you, can you explain a little bit about some of the number fire metrics and maybe how a reality sports online user who's not necessarily familiar with them could go to number fire site to do analysis that may benefit them, you know, across numerous leagues but also on reality sports online yeah i mean uh at number fire we have basically what we do differently than than a lot of other sites is i uh, just look at our uh expected points model which we call net expected points um nep uh you know these net expected points models uh, any expected points model i think really do- what it does best for applying to fantasy is that it shows sort of an underlying that underlying info um you know that that actual production just doesn't sort of pick up uh, expected points models can help find regression candidates uh, both positive and negative it's kind of similar uh with air yards uh, and for you know net expected points specifically it's just you know it, it looks at which players are adding points above expectation to their offense on a given play um i mean it, it's always the, the first time that it, i really wrap my head around uh, what expected points sort of does is you think about a 15 yard gain versus a five yard gain and, and a 15 yard gain is always better than a five yard gain until you think about it. Like that, that 15 yarder could come on third and 20 and lead to a punt. The five yarder could come on third and one. Uh, I mean, one's going to look a lot better for your yards per carry average, but you know, if you really dig in, look at those success rate numbers, look at the expected points added uh, that can really help out uh, when you're making your fantasy football decisions in pretty much any, any format. For sure. And for someone looking at your site for the first time, and I, I would imagine by the time they, they enter the becoming a reality sports online GM, they're probably pretty deep in and you guys are such a leader in the industry. But for the first time, 
like someone like myself without an analytics background looks at a net expected points model, is the net expected points trying to be predictive of fantasy points or like actual points added in uh, real football on the field? Uh, so for our, our number fire metrics, that net expected points, it's actually uh, just descriptive of uh, what a team... So say that there's a, a situation, I mean, I'll just make up the points off the top of my head, but you know, first, first and 10 on the 50-yard line, say the average NFL team is expected to score points on that drive, whether it's via field goal or a touchdown. Um, you know, you, if you add half a point uh, to your team's outcome, uh, that gets added on to your tally. So it's not actually focused on uh, fantasy points, but you can run regression, and we do that every now and again. Uh, we have some sort of recurring content that looks at this guy's uh, net expected points look very good. His fantasy points are down. That could, you know, that's a that's a buy low candidate in, in the making. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it, a lot of it's like pretty situational, as Brandon said. And I mean, I think one thing that you know could benefit in what the number fire net expected points metric plays into reality point reality sports online scoring is we have a, a you could turn on fantasy points for first downs, for instance. And, you know, so so that that is something, you know, that's obviously adding value and increasing net expected points as a team moves down the field, especially, you know, on first and 10, you, a receiver catches the ball for 20 yards. That's accretive to not only their team, but their net expected points. So, uh, yeah, I, I love I love fantasy points for first downs, by the way. It's a it's a great thing to have. It's it's not doesn't make things quite as touchdown dependent. It's uh, I think it's great. Uh, any any sort of outside the box thinking when it comes to fantasy uh, is, is great. That's why I like reality that reality sports uh, setup. Absolutely. And speaking of outside the box thinking, uh, Brandon, you have a, a job that a lot of people that, that follow you on Twitter and a lot of people that, um, and you even were alluding to the fact it's a hard job to explain, right? It's always funny to hear people like you who are making a living here uh, try to explain what we do to the outside world right like i like matt and i rock day jobs and our dads and like our dad runners and the whole bit uh but like how did you find yourself in the mix in number fire and then ultimately playing in a rso league through number fire so i mean the way that i found uh number fire was i wrote on a free <laughs> and now defunct uh fantasy website i just sort of wrote they were taking any submissions it wasn't dependent on you know the quality but um you know i was sitting in in grad school right before class one day it's a night class and i i was scrolling through twitter waiting for class to start and i saw a tweet from uh jj zacharis and looking for just contributors to number fire and i had a few samples and i sent it to him i actually remember i left from the classroom as the professor walked in because i was like i gotta fire off this this email to jj i don't want to miss my chance um yeah, you know, he accepted me, uh, and I wrote actually at the time for free. Uh, number five has grown a long way since then. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of put in the work, um, and I guess really it came down to I was having I was having like my day jobs. I was working as a, as a janitor as I was going through grad school. I, I had a few sort of magazine opportunities, and I just realized that the the desk job, uh, the sort of being a traditional journalist wasn't for me. So I poured everything uh, into uh, trying to impress JJ, trying to impress number fire, sort of learning everything I could, whether it was, ba I'm not a baseball guy, but you know, I learned baseball uh, so that I could help out with content there. And it eventually I became an editor uh, just sort of part-time and then it just transitioned from there. So, I mean, I, 
sort of right place, right time, but also just the, you know, I always say that uh, it's it's not hard work, but it's demanding work. <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm not sure if I just heard the plot to Goodwill Hunting or your story about becoming part <laughs> of a number fire. That was like, that's awesome, man. That's like, it's so cool and encouraging, obviously, to hear how people get their start. And and again, it's it amounts to and culminated, I would imagine, to some extent with the great professional success getting recognized by your peers this year that again, I want to echo Matt's congratulations to you there. And so then Number Fire gets invited by presumably by our founders here at Reality Sports Online to like try out this new format. And uh, so yeah, talk about playing that and like what what you brought to the table with this format and how you might play it slightly differently than other dynasty leagues that you've participated or redraft leagues that you participate in. Yeah, so uh, I, I joined the Reality Sports Online League with some Number Fire uh, peers and. Uh, I mean, of course, coming from number fire, we espouse uh, the late round quarterback strategy. And I'll, I'll never forget, I thought I was going to outsmart sort of everybody um, and sort of get get a, a young quarterback on a cheap contract. And I think I locked up, I'm not 100% sure about the numbers, but I think I locked up Nick Foles for like four years and 20 million. And I was like, I, I got a steal. Uh, before anybody else took a quarterback. And then I realized that I way, <laughs> way overpaid. So <laughs> That did not that did not work out. Sometimes when you play with the number fire guys, you just got to spend uh, the the bottom uh, for quarter. I just love the the flexibility, the sort of differentiation that the reality sports online format causes you uh, to to have. It it makes you really think about what you're investing in, and it's it's just really it's kind of hard to figure out uh, from like a how do I attack this because it all depends on how your your league mates attack it. So. Uh, it's actually been it's one of one of the most fun uh, ways I've had of playing fantasy football for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think I remember some of, like some of those details in that league were fuzzy, but I feel like somehow like Andrew Luck went after that falls contract for like next to nothing or something. That sounds about it, right. It, it, it was like it it was it was such the opposite of some like some of these like super flex leagues that we're in now, Luke, like where everybody was just fighting to pay less for, you know, quarterbacks. It got to a point where it's like, who, who was going to get the best one for, you know, a couple million dollars a year if they even committed like long-term to them. And then you would see like the receivers and the running backs get a pretty penny basically in, in that. But um yeah, it was it was certainly interesting. I mean, I think I think Tyler um, Tyler Beaker, who's been on our podcast before, had the most success with it. Leo Howell was pretty strong. I think I had some pretty good teams. Graham did. Graham Barfield came in, I think, in the second year and did pretty well. And Brandon had some. I think Brandon kind of had a turnaround, if I recall. Like I think he started off slow and then and then did really well. Like you know, towards the end of it, and then we just kind of ran out of you know people who who were like wanting to stick with it like life kind of got <laughs> busy for some folks so but it was a lot it was a lot of fun I, I mean from my end yeah i definitely got it i got it handed to me the first uh, few years but that last year i came uh, i think second place sort yeah, of figured yeah. it out uh, it's funny listening to you guys it's just it sounds like an onion article about num- number fire like analysts fighting to pay as little as possible for <laughs> for a quarterback like that's exactly what uh, we would anticipate so 
Now, Brandon, we are um, super intrigued and and goody. Like, let's we can talk about it this in any order that you want. But a particular article that you recently released uh, that examines which wide receiver prospects dominated the most coll collegiate games in 2018. Um, right, we're all starting to catch the fever. We get to see these guys run in shorts uh, at the at the um, <laughs> at the combine coming up here in Indianapolis, um, and so. I don't know if you want to go with specific players here, Goody, but I certainly have some guys that I want to ask about in context of like, like generally in dynasty and how guys are being seen. But, um, are but, you, are you talking on the, like the rookie side? Like, so, Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, we got to okay. pick up Brandon here a little bit. I guess like initially, Brandon, can you explain kind of the context of, of the, like kind of the hypothesis of the article about the called which wide receiver prospects dominated the most games in 2018 and, and how you kind of went from like ideation to, you know, publishing that. Yeah, so this is actually something I did last year. Uh, but the, sort of the thought process was we look, we look a lot at like dominator rating, uh, yardage, uh, percentage of touchdowns, things like that. But uh, I wanted to kind of look a little bit more, um, just a little bit deeper um, at actual individual games uh, because I figured that uh, if some receivers were more consistent uh, or sort of were responsible for a significant portion of their team's offense, I mean – you can throw in all the context you want about collegiate players, like what which offense they're in, whether they throw it, you know, sixty times or twenty times a game. If you're performing relative to your teammates, that's probably for a reason. And I dug back, and I mean, it sort of passed the eye test if I made the cutoff like the the most like the highest percentage of games that these guys uh, had at least forty percent of their team's receiving yards. Um, I think I went back to like two thousand eight or so, so about it was about ten years. Uh, but Eric Decker was at the top. He had at least 40% of Minnesota's receiving yards in seven of their eight games in 2009. Uh, his final season, Demarius Thomas was at the top of the list as well. DJ Moore uh, sort of showed us what he could do already. He he dominated, uh, I think, 75% of his games at Maryland. Jordan Matthews, uh, Des Bryant, Allen Robinson, Kenny Galladay, all these guys were up there. And, I mean, you have your A.J. Jenkins in there for sure. But, like... Uh, if you just outperform what your teammates do consistently, there's probably a reason for it, and it probably is going to mean something for trying to translate uh, that production into the NFL. Awesome. And in your study, too, you designate that in addition to like digging back to 2008, you end up finding about a sample size of about 150 guys, and they were all taken in the first four rounds. Was that? Uh, I assume that was deliberate on your part, too. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of look back, you can see uh, – draft stock is like the most indicative it's like the most important factor no matter how you sort of build your your model how detailed it is draft equity uh spent on you is going to correlate a lot to how many snaps you see and how much opportunity you get and so uh for this particular study i wanted to like sort of narrow it down to the the guys who were actually taken in the first four rounds because we can all have our Antonio Browns uh, that we, we think to as uh, like the guy who's going to buck the trend, but really draft stock is, is by far at running back and wide receiver, what matters most. So I, I kind of narrowed it down. And I mean, once you do that, you can get rid of your, your sort of outlier plays and then it's going to point you more toward like wh which wide receivers taken in the first four rounds didn't dominate games. And that's probably a red flag. So uh, it leads me to, I, I, I pinpointed 14 guys this year with at least, uh, thirty-three percent of their games dominated, and it's a. Uh, I mean, you have some small school guys on there for sure. I was a little bit, uh, 
inclusive this year, but it, I think it was still worthwhile uh, in the end. Sounds good. And I, I'll start at number 14 because it's one of the biggest names on your list. And we're, we're talking about one of the Ole Miss wide receivers and not the one that's getting the most love of, uh, among the analyst community at the moment. But A.J. Brown comes in at 14th on your list. And try to give some context to us. Like, uh, how is this going to – your list and your examination of the Dominator rating going to translate to um, how you value these guys in rookie drafts uh, come – come fantasy rookie drafts. So he comes in at 14th. Does that necessarily mean that you're looking at him behind guys much higher on the list? Uh, no. Uh, if I had to pick one receiver in this class that I could point to and say, this is the most likely receiver in this class to be a productive wideout, it'd, it'd be A.J. Brown. Uh, the reason that he's 14th on the list is because he's playing with two other wide receivers, or he played uh, at least some of his games with two other wide receivers who are projected to be taken uh, pretty much in the draft. Uh, maybe maybe DeMarcus Lodge slips, but I mean, DK Metcalf is, is the guy you were alluding to. A lot of people have him ranked higher, and I think actually based on my uh, draft model, Metcalf's a little bit higher right now. But yeah, I mean, we, you have to factor in that context. So for Brown being 14th, it doesn't particularly, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not damning by any means that he's 14th because he's still got... Uh, to that 33% while playing with uh, two other stud wide receivers. Awesome. So with that context, Goody, any other names on this list stand out to you Like to ask your boy about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the first thing that Brandon brings up that's important is like the fact that like, yes, there's small school guys on there. And, and this is basically meant to be, it's, it seems like a, a rel- like a relative list. So obviously if you're seeing – if you're seeing targets in your offense, no matter if it's a prolific passing offense or one like like you mentioned Demarius Thomas's name at Georgia Tech, I think when he was a receiver there, they ran the triple option. But when they decided to pass the ball, Demarius Thomas was seeing the looks and he kind of had the physical tool set and you know caught a hundred balls in multiple seasons in the NFL. So I so I think I think that's an interesting point you make. Just kind of a, I think the the analysis is kind of awesome in that way because it's not necessarily just looking at at colleges that had to throw the ball 50 times a game I mean the 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 name that obviously you know that I think everyone's kind of you know fawning over right now and at the towards the top of the wide receivers entry the combine including JJ is is Nikhil Harry and um I, I mean you want to talk about a little bit about like the dominator rating on him, Brandon, and and just kind of like what you see as as his skill set and his comps, maybe as well as any potential red flags. Yeah, so uh, Nikhil Harry actually currently is the number one receiver in just the draft model that I have built. Um, he dominated, or as in you know having forty percent of Arizona State's receiving yards, half of his games, but he also got to that fifty percent mark in half of his games. Uh, it's a it's a pretty interesting profile uh, from you know just really sort of breaking out uh, in an in an like an individual game. Um, I, I guess the the potential red flag, um, if I had to point to one, is that when he didn't get to that forty percent share, um, he actually didn't get to even twenty eight percent, but he was still above nineteen uh, percent of the receiving yardage. I know it's a little bit uh, hard to wrap your head around just having me talk through it, but basically. If he didn't have a huge game, he had sort of an okay game. Um, and some of the games that he dominated were against his uh, weakest uh, opponents. Um, if you look at things from you know football outsiders, they have their S and P 
plus uh, pass defense metric. Uh, three of the games he dominated were against uh, the the three worst uh, pass defenses that he faced against the top two, Michigan State and Washington. He had 23% of the receiving yards uh, and then 19% against Washington. So, I mean, if you want to look at red flags, it's it could be that. Um, but I really don't think that uh, I'm going to nitpick Nikhil Harry too much. I, I think that he comps out sort of, you know, as like an AJ Green as a ceiling, maybe like a Jordan Matthews at, at his worst. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hurtful to hear you say things like that because I remember back in November he dropped like 161 on the University of Utah team that like I still have some affinity for having <laughs> wa- watched my little brother walk onto that team under Urban Meyer and stuff. But so yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but it was a it was a it was pretty rough to. Uh, watch that game and I remember being like this kid is legitimate watching him just destroy and they weren't they weren't terrible that according to that S&P rating that you talk about they were 40th and so um so he did post some good numbers against like what I would characterize as quality competition too but um yeah I mean as you say and you've alluded a couple times to your model and you made a good mention earlier that it, that draft stock it tends to be the biggest predictor of NFL success or at least opportunity in the NFL and a lot of analysts I respect actually point to your work here and like another work done done on dominator ratings as the second most uh, predictive. So like those two things working in tandem can be really helpful. So like if if we cross reference, I guess one way of approaching your fantasy drafts for our reality sports online GMs might be to like do some analysis as to where these guys are getting drafted. It's easy enough to follow that along and then compare it to how much they dominated when they were in when they were in the league is that I assume your model is takes that much further than what I just articulated. I, I mean, my, my draft model is not necessarily uh, the, the most sort of advanced draft model. It really breaks things down into just sort of four variables, uh, draft stock, like dr- your draft equity, uh, your, your breakout age, uh, an adjusted 40 yard dash time. Uh, so no other athletic uh, tests. I, I just, Nothing really else stands out significantly to me enough to weight that in. And then your dominator rating. So again, just the draft position, your breakout age, uh, your, your adjusted 40 time, and your dominator. I think that those are the four things that we can look to when it comes to wide receivers uh, to get a little bit more predictive and without being you know exhaustive and looking at your 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 shuttle times and your your three three cone drill and all that stuff. I, it just doesn't seem to be overly predictive when it comes to projecting prospects. For sure. The only other variable I try to add in my rookie drafts is is what pick would antagonize the people behind me the most. <laughs> like, like, I think that, that would be that's the other variable I try to include as I'm making those drafts. Uh, what do you think, Goody? Any, anybody else that you want to hear? Because there's another name. I mean, it's fun for there's two other names that are fun, but uh yeah, like in fact I'm gonna throw one at you. Hakeem Butler, number fire, and your crowd seems to be higher on um, than a lot of people. I was born in Iowa, so again, there's some personal love for this kid. That he, I mean, there's so much like measurement Twitter is all over him because he's such a tall kid, 6'5 and 225. Like, and so he's predicted in the third and fourth round, so he's crossing that threshold. I'm putting you on the on the hot seat here, Brendan. If you if you 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 were willing to throw your weight behind AJ, um, AJ Brown would are you thinking the same about Hakeem Butler? Cause he, gonna, is he going to make some sense in the NFL? Uh, I think that he could for sure. Uh, now he has more red flags than I think someone like AJ Brown does. I don't think that's really like a hot take. Uh, I think that kind of, it, it seems like Brown is one of the more volatile prospects uh, who is 
in some spots projected to be near the top of the draft. Uh, he is actually ninth for me. Um, some of the reasons that he doesn't grade out higher despite dominating uh, eight of 13 games, which is sixty about 62%. He's a little bit older, uh, and the production wasn't necessarily there until this past season. Uh, so it gives him a, a sort of a late breakout age. And uh, some of the guys at Rotoviz uh, do great work with uh, breakout age. And it just, it makes sense intuitively that if you're performing well, uh, if you're, if you're, you know, responsible for a, a large portion of your team's offense, when you're 18 or 19 playing against, you know, 20, 21, 22 year olds, uh, it's probably because you're better. Uh, and if you don't really break out until you're 21 uh, playing against some younger guys, that might be a red flag too. So I, I, I want to say that I'm in on Hakeem Butler. I think I'm more on in on him than some other people might be. Uh, but I don't think that he's a slam dunk uh, like an AJ Brown is. Sounds good. Goody. I, I hear allegedly that your breakout age versus men much older than you in your, in your pickup basketball league, actually. Right? That factors into it too. Like, yeah. Right. I'll, yeah. I have, I have elusive coordinate, like hand eye coordination. <laughs> passing ability but i can't dribble for anything so i don't waste my time doing it um uh, I, I guess one one more question here about this and then we'll move on um can you talk a little bit about andy isabella i i mean i i obviously number one number one in this in the dominator rating list seemingly i don't really know much about him but like kind of given the five nine like 186 like you know it kind of seems like the slot receiver, like the, you know, obviously based on small school, like a Julian Edelman type or, or, you know, Cole Beasley or like any of that. But, you know, where do you think he, he's going to get drafted round wise? Like, do you think he's a top four round pick or, you know, I, I think I get scared when I like look at these numbers and I'm like, okay, I, I love the Julian Edelman upside, but as somebody who, and granted it was a dart throw and somebody, you know, like that was kind of coached and trained by someone I went to, I went to college with or whatever, but like then, you know, like on the downside, you could have someone like Daniel Braverman who went to like Western Michigan <laughs> and, and played with Corey Davis and, and, you know, like had a hundred yards and a touchdown against Ohio state and some other, you know, good games and, and didn't really necessarily get the opportunity in the NFL with the bears and went in the seventh round. So can, can you kind of help like, you know, mix that argument? Yeah, I mean, he's he might be the single toughest uh, wide receiver for me this year because his range of outcomes seems to be pretty pretty big. I mean, if we're going to exclude some of the the late round guys who could be something, uh, but looking more at the the wide receivers who realistically could be drafted uh, within the first four or five rounds, it's actually hard to get a good gauge on uh, his projected draft round. I think some teams could be very high on him some teams could be way low on him so it is hard and again uh, that draft equity means a lot uh, but for him from like a, a dominator standpoint uh, he, he had at least 40 percent of uh, massachusetts uh, receiving yards in 75 percent of his games uh, he got to just he got to 50 percent in just two of 12 but uh, he was basically at you know uh, 30 like 35 in every single other game other than one he, he had a a game with 19% when he went four for 43 against Florida international, but everything else uh, was almost 40%. So he was just so heavily involved and, and really 
kind of the overall takeaway uh, from from what I'm seeing from Isabella from like a sort of tape and scouting standpoint, which I don't do much of, is that he can be a slot guy, but he also can be a downfield uh, option. Uh, his his athleticism seems to be projecting a little bit better uh, as we come along. Uh, so I'm very excited to see what he does uh, at the combine. But some of the close, uh, like closest comparisons that I have, so, sort of from like a percentile, if I if I break things down in terms of you know that dominator percentile, the adjusted forty percentile, two very different uh, talents. But I think it makes sense based on the he's a slot guy or he could be a downfield guy. Uh, Golden Tate and Tyler Lockett. So I think that sort of even whenever you uh, adjust for the fact that he played at UMass is he. If he's drafted within the first four rounds or so, I think that he has multiple ways to be uh, somewhat productive uh, at the NFL level. Yeah, I think uh, when I hear from you, and again, alluding to like number fighters' prominence within the industry, and the even some of the anecdotal stuff that's coming out about Andy Isabella, reputedly he like he smoked Denzel Ward in a track meet in high school, the the Browns cornerback, and so <laughs> um, like these kind of things, the drumbeat's starting to pick up. That I, I think if I have to point to a player that's going to be the fastest riser, in part because of work like you did, but like I think if he if he goes in those first four rounds, I could see this guy creeping into the top end of the second round or, or late first round even in, in rookie drafts this year, which just is crazy to me to think about having never heard of him like during his entire collegiate career. But I just think he's this guy's a rocket ship in terms of the the, the, the word of mouth that he's getting in the in the community. Actually thinking about all this, Brandon, just because like, you know, and you're familiar with the rookie draft format and reality sports online where this is really your best crack at getting star players at cheap multi-year contracts and even now with the fifth year fifth year first year option so to speak um and contract extensions like if you're sitting towards the top of the draft board in your rookie draft say you didn't have the best season or you traded capital sold at the deadline and and you you have you have at high draft capital from a rookie draft standpoint in this 2019 draft like, you know, say, say you know, obviously if you're a super flex league, it skews a little towards quarterback or whatever. But, like, are, are you given kind of like where people have been chasing the 2014 receiving class of, like, Mike Evans and Brandon Cooks and OBJ and, and, and all that? Are you – are there any guys that you're that confident in that, like, belong up top there? Are you waiting to see, like, running – like, the top couple running backs, how they grade out the combine and, and where they land. Yeah. I mean, I think so for running backs, uh, even more than receivers, at least from what I find it, a lot of these running backs are, I mean, we know the running back replaceability argument is a thing uh, on Twitter. Um, and it's true. I mean, we've seen it with a lot of different, we've seen CJ Anders and step in, uh, for Todd Gurley and be productive. So the the biggest issue for me with projecting running backs is really we don't know when uh, certain running backs are going to go off the board, especially now where there's sort of a just kind of a, like a league-wide de-emphasis on taking running backs super early. Um, and then also uh, we have to factor in uh, the, the landing spot itself rather than just the draft equity because – uh, if you get put on a team, I mean, w- with uh, a few veterans ahead of you, uh, like a so- even a Sony Michelle is a, it's a great offense to be a part of, uh, but you're not going to play uh, 85% of the snaps. 
like you might be if you're Christian McCaffrey. So that all matters. Um, and, and so I guess until we really see where any of these running backs land, it's really hard to project because none of them stand out to me uh, to the point where it's, hey, this is Ezekiel Elliott. There's, a team's going to draft him and give him, you know, 90, 90 to 95 percent of the snaps. It, it just I don't really see those guys. I think that's probably like a, a fair sort of assumption to make. Um, so I, I think that at the top of the draft, if I really had to pick anyone, if I was picking sort of near the top and I just wanted a, a safe guy to lock up, I think I'd probably point back to AJ Brown. All right. And in kind of position agnostic, it sounds like you're in the camp that's making the argument that these wide receivers do, in fact, have the talent that trumps their running back counterparts, just not knowing landing spots, just like we're looking at them as players. The the wide receivers are more talented than the running backs this year. Is that your feeling as you approach this class? Yeah, I think that's kind of the the vibe that I'm getting. Um, my running back stuff is not quite as fleshed out as my wide receiver stuff uh, at this point, but uh, no, no running backs really are sort of popping as like, this is, this is sort of the guy that you have to go get. Um, and you know, I, I'm fine, uh, spending, uh, elite draft equity, uh, in our number fire reality sports online league. The, the reason that I turned uh, everything around was that I got Ezekiel Elliott cause I picked first overall. It was just a no brainer. Um, I don't really think that there's anybody quite on that level. I think that again, that's, uh, probably fair to say. Yeah, I would ask you about quarterbacks, but that's probably just shouting into the void. Like, in, uh, <laughs> just gonna, in a, uh, yeah. I will ask this: are, are you of the camp that like he's characterizing Haskins or Murray as the top quarterback yet, or have you not done uh, dug in on the quarterbacks yet at all for this class? Um, I've done a little bit, uh, but not enough to to make a an educated guess. But uh, I will just sort of make my subject like subjective fan uh, endorsement for Kyler Murray. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, Goody. Where else are we going here? All right. Well, we're mo- we're moving on to America's team, the Cleveland Browns. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I've taken so much punishment. Like in the in the, my prime of number fire, like I was basically the Browns were abominable, and JJ Steelers fan was my editor. You're from Pittsburgh, like. So I I, I want to talk about your Kareem Hunt article, and like not 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 the man, but the football player. Yeah. Um, and basically the situation and, and, you know, like why you think the Browns brought him in and, and why, you know, what it looks like from a number fire metric standpoint. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed that article and I, I, you know, I have my own theories, but I, I kind of want to he- hear from you about cream hunt because given, you know, I think one of the big things and how Kareem Hunt emerged in this draft process a couple of years ago as a star, you know, even before like the Spencer Ware, you know, injury stuff is like, I, I personally like spending draft capital if I'm iffy or anything else. Um, I, you know, obviously like PFF elusiveness and all those things factor in, but I love when a team trades, trades up or invests other capital to go get a guy that they like, like Arizona, I think maybe did with David Johnson. Um, I I know that the chiefs did it with cream hunt. So let's talk a little bit about hunt if, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess like the biggest variable in all this is we don't know what the suspension is going to be. So we don't know how that's going to impact 2019, um, we also just don't necessarily know how he'll be used because Nick Chubb was very good. I guess the, the obvious route, uh, for hunt to be used, uh, over Chubb, if you're a hunt guy, 
is that he should start over Nick Chubb because he is a more sort of dynamic, uh, you know, three down back than Nick Chubb is. But I think really overall, uh, pouring over the metrics, uh, I mean, for for as good as Kareem Hunt is on the field, uh, we saw Damian Williams and to a lesser degree, Spencer Ware step in and again, kind of replace uh, most of what Kareem Hunt gave us. Um, and that is just a lot like that. That's really team dependent. If you're playing with Patrick Mahomes at your side, uh, creating a lot of space for you, you can do a lot. Now, obviously, I'm high on Baker Mayfield and Freddie Kitchens. Uh, I'm not going to put them quite on that level. Although, if you really dig in uh, to the efficiency under Freddie Kitchens, I mean, they really turned things around. They went from uh, the first eight weeks, they were 29th in net expected points per play, according to Number of Fires metrics, uh, 29th in success rate as well. After they got Freddie Kitchens up to 7th in uh, net expected points per play, uh, 12th in success rate. So there's a lot of opportunity uh, for this Browns offense. But, I mean, you have two running backs now, uh, maybe three if you're you know still including the Duke Johnson. Uh, I think I'm, st- I'm still waiting for Duke Johnson. But, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's really going to be problematic again. And uh, assuming that Hunt is uh, suspended for uh, just a few games. We don't we don't know that yet, but um, I, I think we just saw this with the Browns last year with Carlos Hyde and and Duke Johnson and Nick Chubb. So it's going to be a bit of a headache until we sort of know for sure what the suspension is. Yeah, kind of along those lines. I mean, obviously, be like depending on the life cycle of people's leagues in reality sports online, you have Hunt and Hunt on on first say first year rookie deals um, at you know six seven million dollars a year, and then the people who did startups last year, you know third maybe thirty million dollars a year as like an elite asset, and and so it, it's really like the the suspension length really kind of dictates what you do with him because in theory in most leagues you can use like the injured reserve as an asset to get cap space back you can you know effectively this is a two-year contract so you have to kind of figure out what you know on the browns or he's a restricted free agent so you have to kind of figure out what they're doing with them and it seems like you know like the rhetoric about duke johnson is kind of like well he's still on the team now so like i i agree with you like the 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 nup stuff on the passing game and what what hunt does as a receiver is probably where he'd have value is that what you're saying yeah, I mean, you can definitely make that case. Uh, he is an efficient receiver. We saw that definitely uh, with him this season when he had those seven receiving touchdowns um, on the 35 targets. But really what you can also say sort of on the flip side is that uh, he sort of overperformed. Um, you know, if you sort of run that regression analysis, uh, he's not going to score. He's not going to be quite as proficient. Uh, as a touchdown scorer. And really, if you look at things and, and you get into these smaller samples, which is always problematic, but uh, Chubb was pretty much as efficient as Kareem Hunt was in 2017 once Freddie Kitchens took over. So if you take the second half of 2018 as a receiver, Nick Chubb was kind of on that Kareem Hunt level uh, in 2017. So I'm high on Chubb as a receiver, but it, you know, Really, what it comes down to is you have to admit that it doesn't matter what you think or what you know. Uh, it's what the coaches think or think they know, and that's really what matters. So, as, no matter if I think Nick Chubb can be a uh, you know a a receiving threat out of the backfield, if they don't use him as such, he's not doing anything for your fantasy teams. So, yeah, I do think 
that receiving work is the number one way uh, for Kareem Hunt to have a lot of value over Nick Chubb. Uh, but I do think that uh, a sort of a split is going to be most likely once once Kareem Hunt is reinstated. Yeah, I think you you speak well to a couple of things. And, and one of the last things I, I, I've written for the Reality Sports Online site is I, I wanted to chase, the I guess, the thinking of offensive play callers. And, and I found that sometimes, like, obviously, it benefits you to be part of a good offense like Kansas City runs. But sometimes if you can get in the head of offensive play callers a little bit, there are, there are some kind of older school offensive play callers that still give tons of opportunity, even on bad offenses and inefficient offenses to running backs, both through the air and through the ground. But my question for you was as a reality sports online GM is well, running backs might be replaceable in the NFL. The flip side of that is in fantasy that they seem to become more precious. And, um, did you find yourself more inclined to use your rookie draft capital and those those good contracts? Uh, are are you even more pushed towards using those on running running backs <laughs> that might have opportunity rather than even more talented wide receivers if you're if you were given the opportunity when you were playing? Yeah, I can definitely uh, see that. Uh, again, I took Ezekiel Elliott first overall. I do recall that that was a pretty much a, a slam dunk, no brainer. But I mean, if you're going to get a running back who's taken maybe in the the the, the later half of the first round, even if uh, you know if you had Sony Michelle on your team this year, even though he missed a few games, you're probably not complaining because uh, even though his snap rate wasn't very high, he got a touch on a higher rate of his snaps than any other running back that. The Patriots drafted him in the first round for a reason. Even some of these busts in the first round, like you think back to your Trent Richardson's, it's, I mean, they took him in the first round. Uh, they're going to give him the ball, and that's exactly what happened. So if you, if we, if, you know, if you're having your uh, sort of any dynasty drafts um, after the actual NFL draft and you see where these guys go and they're taken in the first round, first, you know, first half of the second round, like Nick Chubb was last year, 35th overall. He's going to see some work. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, even if he's not, you know, even if these guys aren't good, um, they're going to get they're going to get be about a season of work, and that that can be very helpful. Uh, but if you you know you hit on the right running backs, the elite running backs can just give you such a big advantage in your fantasy leagues. That uh, as you mentioned, yeah, running backs might be kind of on the way out uh, from an NFL. You know the, the bell cow running back might be out on the, like in the NFL, but if you can find that Christian McCaffrey, that Ezekiel Elliott, that you know Todd Gurley playing ninety percent of the snaps, that's just it's super vital and it's it's just a very good piece to have on your team. I, I love that you're pointing all this out as my colleague Luke and dispersal draft and subsequently like thereafter making trades has zero running backs on his roster right now. <laughs> Does it, in fairness, he has the, he is the second and third picks in our in our 16 team superflex rookie draft. Um, so a little context um, for you, Brandon. So um, Luke and I teamed up last year to host the podcast league, and we shared a team just to get other basically to get another team that, that was interested in the league. So we, yeah. we shared a team and, and then Superflex we started like in, with Drew Brees as one of our quarterbacks and, and Nick Foles and Nathan Peterman as our Superflex. <laughs> and somehow through a series of luck, good trades, a little bit of you know things bouncing the right way, getting another quarterback like an Andy Dalton and then picking up Nick Mullins, like Taylor Heineke in the championship game, we, we end up going 15-0. Jeez. And, won, and won the league. So like, 
and and now now we've we've split up and are running our own teams and we had a five team dispersal draft a few weeks ago that we recorded live on the podcast it was a lot of fun so um i, I think you want you want to talk about it in um a couple players and like what their contracts are and some trades and tell me which side you you you'd like better on these yeah let's do it Okay. Um, one guy I'm thinking about that we haven't really given much run to, and it, it's kind of falls in like line with the rookie draft thing in the past, and was a draft darling, and and you know, still like a lot of people are probably giving up on him now, and the question is what, when to jump off or if to jump off, you know, with with like you know new coordinators and whatnot. Um, Corey Davis. <laughs> so I so so like. I guess one of one of the trades I'm looking at for Corey Davis, Corey Davis traded for one team. He was on a four year deal for about so rookie deal it looks like for about twenty seven million dollars, so about seven million dollars a year average. Um, he got traded along with a fourth round 2019 draft pick for a 2019 second and a 2021 second. Would which side? I don't know how many teams are in the league, but like which side of that would would you prefer at this point? So it was Davis for seven million and a fourth for two seconds. Correct. Um, I'm still I'm still bullish enough on Corey Davis. I actually started a, a dynasty league with uh, some some number fire guys uh, last year, and I took Davis. And even though it was very frustrating, um, I I like I like Davis enough as a prospect. Um, I, I think that again that the draft capital was there. Uh, I think that I'm. You know, over high, overall high on Marcus Mariota. Um, I think I have to be because he is uh, Jim Sonis's. Uh, I, I can't say I can't say anything bad about Marcus Mariota, but I think <clears throat> I think that Davis is uh, certainly worth it, especially for you know a contract that you can you can stomach. Um, and uh, you know, you, I think that uh, just sort of overall, I'm high enough on Davis where I'd be uh, on that on that side. I think. I'm with Brandon here. I think that trade is exactly what you ought not to do with players that you've invested high draft equity in. He's actually one of the one of the receivers that has retained his value, like in terms of like fantasy draft uh, stock and in startup value. Even um, it's certainly on the dynasty end of things, people people still have confidence in Tennessee. They still see him. It's kind of an unquestioned number one there, and those are rare to have. And people remember him remember taking him first overall or seeing him go first overall in their, in their rookie drafts. I, th- I just think that the Davis side of that deal just smokes the other side, especially because you have a player in hand and one of those picks you're not even going to see for a year. So I think that that's a pretty rough trade for whoever offered the Davis. Let me give you guys two more of these and see if your opinion changes about Davis. Um, here, here's kind of a more simplified one. Corey, Corey Davis at, at three years, $20 million. So another about $7 million on a rookie deal. Um, along with a 2019 second in, ex- in exchange for Michael Gallup on a three-year deal. The total is about $5 million. So about one and a half, $1.6, $1.7 million a year. And a 2020 second. Uh, I like Gallup a lot, but I'd still rather have Davis. The draft picks are close enough for me where I, I wouldn't really factor that in enough. I, 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 I think that Davis for me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. I, I'm always bad with, uh, you know, these, these trades, I think maybe I'm overlooking something, but I think that's uh Davis for me. 
I don't think you are. I think if we're just talking tiers, the the discrepancy between how those two players are viewed is still so dramatically different. Even even people that are willing to look and overlook Gallup's seeming lack of production is for sure. Yeah, a lot of people still like him, and he uh, he was a darling of the draft community for a time there. Uh, but he he had kind of an unadulterated path to targets and didn't really capitalize on his first year. He still very well could break out, but. I mean, Davis at least has shown us flashes, and I, I just think you can get more than that. And yeah. maybe, maybe I'm wrong based on these oh. trades. Well, he, here's here's probably the toughest one of them all. There's actually probably about seven Davis trades that happened within the first week or two. So he seems to be one of the more marketed players. Um, he, here's one that's probably the the most difficult to figure out. So team, so along with Corey Davis at three years, sixteen million. So again, about five six million a year. Um, an owner sent Le'Veon Bell three years, 141 and a half million. <laughs> so really big, really big contract and a 2021st. And in exchange for that package of three assets, they got back Michael Thomas on a rookie deal, three years, 22 and a half million and a 2019 se- second, which, which side of the deal you guys like there? Oh boy. I'm going to defer to Luke first. So, <laughs> I usually defer to like the the best player in the deal is where I'm going to capitalize it. And the, the Thomas deal, remind me, was a rookie one. It looks like, yeah, th- it, it it seems that way. Three years, twenty two and a half million. Again, it depends on how long. If that's expiring this year, I'm trying to remember when Thomas came into the league. Like that that factors into it whether or not you're using your keeper on him. But I think at the end of the day, I think I would go to the Thomas side on that one. And my only rationale is. He is as as kind of insulated in terms of his value as any wide receiver right now. Again, he would be marketable. And uh, as you know, my rationale in Re- Reality Sports Online is also factoring in, like, that's not just getting Michael Thomas. That's freeing up $30 million or so in cap room. And that you're getting another potential top-tier free agent or making at least – uh, the ability to make a play at a top tier free agent almost any time in a, in a league's life cycle. You can go get somebody this year, like a Philip Lindsay that probably wasn't put on any kind of rookie contract or something. So I think I, I think when I factor in Michael Thomas and Philip Lindsay, I'd rather have that side of the package. I was thinking pretty much uh, that the cap space, but Thomas just being such a dominant, such a consistent play. Uh, I'd be fine with that. Um, you know, I, again, I, I'm, I'm always terrible with dynasty uh, trades because I just have a, a hard time valuing um, just sort of both sides, and it's a, it's a big weakness of mine. But I think that uh, in the end, I would I'd be good with Thomas in the cap space because Thomas is so good. Well, Brandon, you're very self-effacing, and uh, <laughs> you you have not demonstrated a lot of weaknesses on this podcast. It's been a blast having you. Um, you you. We're very kind not to mock my co-host. He, he's eminently mockable, having been in leagues with him. So like, I'm glad you didn't blow him up too much. Um, one question I like to ask of people before before I turn you over to Goody for him to say goodbye to you, but uh, one question I like to ask is if, like you sitting where you are now, um, if, if fantasy football couldn't be part of our lives and you had to create a fantasy game around anything else and bring people into it and build a Twitter community around it, what what would you build a fantasy community around if football wasn't part of your life? Uh, boy, so uh, I, I won't I won't cheap out and say a different sport because it would be it would be golf. But yeah, you're, uh, like, you're like fantasy golf. Everybody come play. So. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, hmm, I'm, I'm like 
not a movie guy. Um, I don't know. I think maybe maybe stand up comedy. Uh, maybe we could get like a laughs per minute metric in there, or something like that. Uh, applause breaks, stuff like that. That'd be that'd be pretty fun. That's super clever. I like, yeah, that. I like that. That's one of our better answers that we've gotten so yeah. far. I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. One one question for you, Brandon. Obviously, like you know. We have a pretty diverse listener base and user base at Reality Sports Online who likes analytics. Number Fire obviously likes analytics. If if some of our listeners are aspiring writers who'd like to maybe write analytics for Number Fire, how would they go about doing that? I mean, the, the biggest piece of advice, uh, just you know, getting in uh, to writing it is really you know taking a step back and just looking at what your weaknesses might be as a writer, as an analyst. Again, I come from a, an English lit background, uh, journalism background. So I'm not a math major. I don't have that analytics background, but just sort of taking a step back and seeing what you're lacking in, uh, whether it's, you know, your grammar or your voice or anything like that. And, uh, just really work on writing, uh, never be discouraged. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking to write, uh, for, you know, any, any site or number fire, uh, you can, you can let us know, uh, you can, uh, you know, email us, um, can email me directly, hit me up on Twitter or something like that. Uh, but I mean, it really, uh, I know that it's always, it always seems hard to sort of break into the industry, but if you put in the work and you really go the extra mile, um, I mean, even if it's just a hobby, it's uh, it, it can be, it's, it's just a really great thing to sort of have to look forward to each week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. And uh, if people do want to go hit you up on Twitter, where are they looking for you after hearing you on our podcast? I am at Gadula13, G-D-U-L-A-1-3. All right, and I'm at Fantasy Doc Ock. And, Goody, you can take us home tonight. All right, um, you can find me at MattGoody2. And this is the All About Reality podcast with our first little preview into the 2019 NFL Draft. Thank you again, Brandon.